That was fun. That was fun. Well, uh, well survived, and thank you all for um, reacting, booing and jeering, uh, or whatever. Uh, nobody threw bread rolls, which was good. Um, now, what we're going to do for about three-quarters of an hour, perhaps to half past ten, see how it goes, is uh, to first get a brief reaction from our panellists here, and then I'm going to open this up so that anybody who wants to say something can say it, make it reasonably punchy, I hope, say what you want, what you thought about this evening. It seems to me that the issues that come out of tonight are content versus personality. What do we think of the content of this debate? What did it tell us about the, the things that underlie these parties, as opposed, as opposed to the personalities of the uh, individuals taking part? As far as Ed Miliband was concerned, the only one of these uh, five characters who can become Prime Minister, did it help him or hinder him? Interesting question to ponder, I think. What does any of this say about a progressive coalition, even if not a coalition, a working arrangement between, say, the Labour Party and the other parties, here represented, or three of them at least, if it came to that? Fourth, was David Cameron right or wrong to stay away? They'll be pondering that a lot, I suspect, in Downing Street at the moment. Um, and then finally, does the public, and we are the public, sort of get all this stuff about austerity and about cuts, or is it just all sort of so much blah, blah, that in the end people sort of switch off during that bit and then just look at people and try to think what they think about the personalities? Anyway, that's my first thought. They're going to hear live reaction from a panel with all those people in that weird room telling uh, all of the those people from the political parties saying what they think really happened to journalists who've been standing around waiting for them to do it. We don't have to do that. We have our own panel and we have you. So there uh, will be plenty of time to hear from both of them. But I'd like just to begin by perhaps asking Sue, you're a seasoned observer, if I can generously call you that, not too seasoned obviously, around a long time looking at these kind of things. What did you make, I'll stop now before I get in, what did you make of those performances, about the spectacle of it? Well, I thought it was thundering good entertainment. It was, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think if he doesn't make Prime Minister, Ed Miliband could uh, possibly go in for more acting lessons and get himself a BAFTA. <laughs> really, uh, I'm afraid, I think they've over-rehearsed him. Uh, yes, he wasn't making so much movement with his hands and that smile, I mean, it was, it was scary. I, I think that um, overall, some of the things he said, of course, were perfectly sensible, but I think it detracted somehow from the thing that he most needed to do, which was to look really prime ministerial. And the grinning and the looking round at the others somehow, for me at any rate, didn't quite work. I thought Nicola Sturgeon did really well. I don't agree with the SNP at all, but one of the, the high points of this rather dreary campaign in many ways, for me at any rate, but I suspect for a lot of other people, has been watching... Nicola Sturgeon running rings round the men uh, and I think she did really really well again and I think one of the things that she did well was that she was inclusive uh, and looked uh, I mean she's obviously not going to be Prime Minister but she looked as though she was in that class, she is First Minister of Scotland and she did look a cut above the others I thought that Nigel Farage 
was um, he looked strangely uncomfortable to me. I thought, um, not just because uh, a lot of people were against him, he's used to that, but there was some, apart from the crack about the Barnet formula and uh, we're going to send less money over Hadrian's Wall, which I thought was quite entertaining, he didn't somehow manage to pull off his usual trick of being the cheeky, cheeky chappy, which I think is quite an important part of his uh, appeal when he does manage to do it. He somehow seems to be standing back. He was all too close to it and it was too sort of anti-immigrant and very strong. Um, I thought Natalie Bennett, who I am not a fan of, I thought did much better than I've seen her do before. And I thought Leanne uh, Wood did well as well. She always almost seems, I mean, I think she, she comes over as a very likable uh, and sort of passionate person, but she always seems to me slightly to be the odd one out. It's a kind of, oh, God, we've got to do a bit of Wales. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought it was, I thought it was uh, great fun. I thought uh, it was a, a tremendous, um, as a spectacle, uh, I thought we didn't really get very much further on the substance, and we certainly didn't get, it seemed to me, very much further on things like where uh, the Labour Party is going to put uh, its cuts. I mean, he just refused to answer that. And if I were doing a sort of serious analysis of it, I'd say that was a great... Um, uh, a great weakness. Uh, one other thing, I just thought it was a bit of a pity when they were all getting so excited about the health service that you couldn't mm. just say, come on, that's what they want to talk about. I thought the defence stuff was a bit bloodless. I'd rather have had health. OK, very good. Uh, thanks very much, Sue. Simon? I think tonight it was all about Ed Miliband. Um, this was Ed Miliband's one real chance to try and demonstrate that he's prime ministerial material. And on the one hand, I agree with Sue that in terms of his mannerisms, um, it was noticeable how here in the audience, the audience was laughing as much at just expressions on Ed Miliband's face as it was at, at the sort of strange things Nigel Farage likes to say. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, what I think will come across from tonight's debate is Miliband was able to position himself as a political moderate. He was able to position himself as a political moderate on Trident. He positioned himself as a political moderate on uh, austerity and cuts and, and having to balance both um, cuts in spending as well as maintaining spending levels on health care or increasing spending levels on health care. Um, and so it's much harder then for the Conservatives to, to run a campaign that says it's a choice between us and the loony left as loony Ed, left-wing Ed, red Ed. Um, he's managed to position himself with the emergence of the Greens and the SNP implied to his left and arguing with him from the left, he's then coming across as a political moderate and saying, actually, I'm the moderate here and you vote for me, I'm a moderate. To my right are the crazy conservatives and to my left are all these guys and I'm actually in the middle of British politics these days. And if it, if any, if it comes out of the debate tonight that that's what really the message that comes home, I think that inevitably will help him, I think, winning what is really key uh, conservative seats he needs to win. The other thing I found fascinating was the, the argument between, and the vehement of the vehemence of the argument between him and Nicola Sturgeon. Because I think Nicola Sturgeon's strategy has been very strongly to sort of demonstrate to English voters that she's not scary. 
So, you know, I think the perception and the Conservative press, up until the first election debate, the Conservative press was running a, we live in fear of a Frankenstein coalition, a sort of strange artificial coalition between Labour and those terrifying SNP. And they had all these pictures of Alex Salmond with Ed Miliband in his top, in his top pocket. And they tried the same with Nicola Sturgeon with Ed Miliband in her top pocket. And it doesn't really work because the English voters seem to say, she seems pretty reasonable, she seems pretty sensible, she seems p- quite moderate, she seems quite prime ministerial, m- immaterial, she seems trustworthy and honest. Is it really so bad that there could be a, a Labour minority supported perhaps in the Commons by the SNP? And I think she very cleverly has run a strategy both in the first debate and in this debate to say, vote for me for Scotland. But by the way, the rest of you in England, I stand up for you too, and I'm a political moderate, and I will not be crazy, and I'm not going to fleece you in the interests of Scotland. And I think that has really changed the terms of the debate and made it much more difficult for the Conservatives to run a, if you don't have a, a, a Tory Lib Dem coalition, the only alternative is Labour and these scary loony SNP. I don't think most English voters think of them as the loony SNP anymore as a result of Nicola Sturgeon. Which then makes it strange that we then have this really vehement argument between Miliband and Nicola Sturgeon there. And I think he's thinking Scotland. He's thinking, I want to try and save five, perhaps ten Labour seats in Scotland. And so the real debate is between me and Nicola Sturgeon. If I can hold on to those ten seats in Scotland that she's going to take from me, I could actually get close to that majority in Westminster and perhaps I could have a Labour-Lib Dem coalition with a majority and not have to rely on the SNP. He's thinking that's a tactic. But that might backfire if he finds himself in a situation where he is reliant on the SNP and then the voters are saying, but you said all the way along you will not do a deal with the SNP. Remember that debate where you said you're not going to touch the SNP and here you are, you lied to us again and we can't trust any of you. We had the Lib Dems who lied about tuition fees and now you're lying to us about the SNP having now said you'll never do a deal with them. So I find it very strange this argument they're having with the SNP. Okay. Sue, so, do you think, um, thanks Simon, do you think uh, David Cameron will have sat in Downing Street and they will have watched it with uh, Linton Crosby and the team, no doubt. Do you think they think they made a mistake by staying away or do you think they will have seen that and said, yep, that we made the right decision? Uh, I think they will probably decide that they've made the right decision not to go. I don't think that it would have done Cameron... Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he'd have put on a good performance. I mean, he is Prime Minister after all. But I don't think that <coughs> he would have... <coughs> excuse me. I don't think it would really have been to his advantage. Uh, and I also don't think that despite this sort of, you know, come on, David Cameron, debate me head to head, I don't... Th- I mean, I think we're all interested and the t- TV people are all interested... I don't think that an awful lot of voters give a stuff whether there is another uh, TV debate, whether Cameron was there or not. Uh, not least because, I mean, for heaven's sake, they're all popping up all over the place, both during when the Commons has been sitting, he's, Cameron's debating with Ed Miliband all the time, and even now um, when you have uh, endless, endless election uh, pieces on the telly. So I think that Cameron, I think Cameron also would have um, found that they were all against him, uh, possibly from Farage, who would have attacked him from a different um, uh, angle. But I think this sort of we do not have to have austerity, I think it probably resonates with more people than you think. Whatever you think of it economically, that you you really do need to cut down the deficit, I think a lot of people would be quite keen on it. And Cameron would have then found all of them against him. Right. I'll open it up. I'll just ask one more thing of Simon. I mean, 
it's been said that if, in the end, Miliband ends up depending on um, the Scottish nationalists, the Welsh nationalists, and a Green or two in Parliament, that they would then try to break away his left wing on some issues to try to create a sort of much more radical bloc in Parliament. And then Miliband would left, be left with uh, a major chunk of his own party, but it would create a very odd dynamic because of these clearly well to the left of the core of the Labour Party, nationalists and Greens, then creating common cause with you know, the Labour left, which has been so stuck with nobody, certainly yeah. Blair, nobody to work with. Oh, well, I'm not sure there's that many of the Parliamentary Labour Party these days that you can think of as the Labour left. I don't think it's the same party as it was <laughs> 10 or 15 years ago in that sense. But I think you're right that there will be pressure on him from a lot of his backbenchers to say... Is it really such a bad thing for us to have a, a, a deal? I don't. The SNP will not go into coalition. They don't want to sit around a cabinet table, quite rightly. But I think they do want to support Ed Miliband to be prime minister. And I think if that's the situation, I think there'll be a lot of his backbenchers saying, "This is our chance to get into number ten. Why would you not take it? Why would you not say we you, we all get to sit around the cabinet table and we get to run the the country for five years? And all we need to do is is have a is rely on the SNP to support us in a vote in a Queen's speech." support us in a budget and support us if there was a vote of no confidence. Why would you not do that? And I think it's dangerous, for, potentially dangerous for him to try to rule it out right now. The other thing we haven't talked about is Nick Clegg. I think he's potentially the biggest loser from this tonight. He's the one who, who really may perhaps have had a chance here tonight to answer that question on a hung parliament. What are you going to do in a hung parliament, Nick? Actually, you're the key person we want to hear from in a hung parliament. He's trying to keep saying in the press over the last few weeks that he will talk to whichever is the largest party first. So it's not a foregone conclusion that his first choice is to go back into government with the Conservatives. If Labour is the largest party, he has said he will talk to Labour. Now, it would have been interesting to see him say that on the stage tonight and see Ed Miliband's response to that. Would Ed Miliband then at that point say, if I don't have a majority and we're the largest party, I would form a coalition with the Liberal Democrats, which is what he would have been asked had, had um, uh, uh, Clegg been there tonight. And I think it's a shame, and I think the BBC quite I, quite frankly, I think have not done a service to British democracy by denying Clegg the possibility to be there tonight. Clegg requested to be there tonight. The BBC said, no, you can't. It's now an opposition debate because Cameron wanted it to be an opposition debate. So basically, this is the BBC bending over backwards for the Conservative government because they're worried about the renewal of the licence fee. They're not, you know, that's the only reason why they denied Nick Clegg a seat at that table. I think it's disgraceful. <laughs> okay, right, good. Thank you, Simon. Now, we're going to open it out. If you want to say something, you say that you liked something or disliked something or something was missing or comment on what you've heard from up here. Anybody wants to represent Northern Irish politics in the audience, feel free. Democratic unionists out there, Northern Ireland nationalists, feel free to say what you'd like. You don't have to say... We've got some mics, so... We've got mics, yes. Can you bring, there's a guy, the man here, just in the very middle here. And... Chat back there next. Okay. Um, do you see the rise of nationalist parties such as the SNP and Plaid Cymru as conductive to politics, or does it perhaps lead to a more fractured parliament and less stable government in the near future? Okay, we'll take a two or three together. So that does the um, arrival of national parties, parties mean more fragmented government, I think, and less predictable government. Okay, and I promised somebody back there. 
I just wondered what your views were on the way that this, in the discussion you just had, it was very much focused on personalities, and we've lost that sense of broad substance that the parties are campaigning on. I think a lot of the parties are campaigning on um, a program that has very definite red lines, but then a lot of wiggle room in post post vote negotiations. I think that's quite interesting that we're moving to a, a comfortable position where the vote on May the seventh isn't the decision. The parties are quite happy to then have a discussion post. And I think in terms of machinery of government, that's quite an interesting proposition because despite what you're saying about coalitions being easy, actually when you look at the arithmetic and you look at how the different interactions might play, a minority government could be the best out of both worlds because trying to do government with consistently difficult negotiations all the way through is quite neutering, actually. Okay, very good. Uh, and then, uh, any female questioners? It's good to have at least one female questioner in each round. No, no, I to deny the man at the front here who's been waiting. Come on. There's a woman. There's a female, yep. It's Nona. No, no. I'll come back to you. Hello. Uh, I'll make it about women. Um, so today, obviously, we saw three women on stage out of five participants. Do you think this will signal a shift in British politics towards more female participation and hopefully more uh, female engagement in politics? And also, if we can have a little follow-up, um, do you think it was disappointing that the female leaders didn't actually raise any, women, any female issues throughout the debate, such as childcare, um, young women, all of that sexual harassment that's going on? Okay, great. Now, three good questions. Uh, you don't have to answer all of them each, but take your choice. Um, do you want to start Two. soon? Um, okay. Um, I think on the, the terms of uh, wiggle room, I think about what happens afterwards, assuming nobody does get an overall majority, which still doesn't occur very likely. I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating what happened, what ha what's going to happen. They were all uh, refusing to really talk seriously about their red lines in response to the question that they were asked. Um, I think there are a couple of, of possibilities. One, um, the actual the voters may be very dismayed if they, which they will to some extent, all go behind closed doors and start doing stitch-ups among themselves. I think there could be a real backlash against this sort of behind closed doors and we'll sort it out among themselves, given the contempt for the political class uh, that we're starting with. If they get through that, and if the House of Commons is then endlessly sort of doing deals on a case-by-case -case basis, which I think is very likely to happen one way or another, it could actually make for rather better government. Uh, fewer laws, um, better thought-out um, proposals, a rather different approach. I think also it could mean that the focus switches much more to the House of Commons itself and to doing deals, again, on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and you might almost, because of polling, sorry, you might almost, because uh, there is so much polling, the public might be able to express a view on uh, individual issues by the fact that as votes come up, there's going to be much more polling about them. That's a good point. I think on the um, women point, 
Um, I hope it uh, means a bit of a shift. I think one of the good things about the debate has been to have women there, practically for the first time ever, and especially Sturgeon being so powerful, even if, like me, you disagree with her. Um, I don't think it's a great loss to have women's issues. I think, um, discussed, uh, I think, I mean, obviously women's issues are important, but I think to some extent it's a bit of a mistake to label everything to do with childcare a woman's issue and harassment a woman's issue. I mean, other people, men are sometimes harassed, uh, men have children. Uh, and I think that also it, it acts sometimes to exclude women. You know, you go off there and make the tea and worry about women's issues and we'll get on and uh, do the serious stuff. So I don't, that didn't worry me that uh, that, that was, as was happening. Um, on the first set of issues, which relates to fragmentation, one thing I think is... Uh, what would have this election been like and how would this have been reported had we not had the experience of coalition government? So the counterfactual is, I think right now there'd be far more panicked sort of reporting. Oh my God, there's going to be a hung parliament. Oh my God, this is going to be terrible. There's going to be all these smoke deals in smoke-filled rooms and we won't know what's happening. But the fact we've had a coalition government for five years... At the time, nobody thought it was going to last five years. Nobody thought it was going to be a functioning government. In some ways, we've actually seen um, less, dis you know, less disagreement between the two parties in government than we saw actually within the Labour Party in the last government, between Brown and Blair. So, I mean, it is possible to have a coalition government that comes to a coalition deal that's quite a transparent coalition deal that says, here's a coalition agreement, and you can see as a voter which bits of the manifesto are in the coalition agreement and which bits of the manifesto are not in the coalition agreement. I'm surprised that there hasn't been more questions asked by journalists and more, more demand in these debates to say to them, which of these manifesto commitments are red lines that you will not give up in any post-election coalition deal? Because I, I was expecting that to be far more asked in this election campaign. But in general, I think the public is quite relaxed about the idea that there's not going to be a single-party majority government after this election. In fact... I would even go as far as to say a majority of the voters actually do not want there to be a single-party majority government after the election. They, they don't like the thought of there either being a Labour majority or there being a Conservative majority because they've only got 30-something percent of the vote. And do we really want a government with 30-something percent of the vote being able to govern with a whopping great majority in the House of Commons, being able to push through laws against almost 70 percent of the public voting against them? I don't think that's healthy for democracy, and I, don't think, I think a lot of people in Britain actually accept the idea that it's quite healthy for British democracy that politicians have to compromise. What about the problem, Sue's problem then, of this sort of no longer smoke-filled rooms? I can see your point about, you know, if they get 33, 34% of the vote and got a majority, that wouldn't look very good. But if we then end up with even a loose agreement involving a big party and two, three or four smaller parties... Even the, 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 the but I, details I, of the I tell you what I don't like about I tell you what I don't like about minority government. On the one hand, I agree with Sue that that having minority government and having then to have more deliberative government when you pass law. And I think you, the contrast between Westminster and the Scottish uh, Parliament is quite telling on that one. The Scottish Parliament is far more deliberative, meaning laws being amended on the floor, budgets having a longer budget debate. Sturgeon, when she was here, explained how in Scotland the budgetary negotiations take a lot longer. You actually amend the budget through the process of bargaining, and it's more transparent in that sense. That, would, that sort of more deliberative politics inside Westminster, I think, would be very healthy. 
But what I worry about of a minority government is then that minority government being held to ransom on issue by issue by a particular small party. What we see in Scandinavia is minority parties being held to ransom by very small parties on particular key issues. For example, Danish governments repeatedly have been held to ransom by radical right parties on immigration issues who have not been sitting around the cabinet table but have been relying on them for their support inside the House of Commons. And I would worry then about... I'd rather, in a sense, have a deal that's written down with the SNP that you can hold them to right. and have the SNP on the back benches saying, well, we're not going to support you on anything except this. That's unlikely. I think that's highly unlikely. I know. Unlikely. I don't think there's going to be, uh, the chances are there won't be a coalition agreement. It's not going to be nearly as clear and clean as it was in 2010. And, and that is the problem. It will be in and rooms, rooms be. Right, day by right, day by day. They might not smoke, yeah. 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 Uh, and, and I think that is what is going to really, uh, uh, potentially, really, really annoy the public. And one of the reasons journalists don't keep on asking them about yeah. the lines is because they, they don't never answer. answer the question. Yeah. I mean, as they didn't, as they didn't there, you know, they, they all I'm holding their cards, hold close to their chest. Okay, and you want to be that guy at the back? No, I wanted to get a nonus question. What the the nonus question about the, the women. I, I, I would like to hope that, you know, after this election, we're going to see a new leader of Labour or a new leader of the Conservatives, or perhaps new leaders of both of them. And at least one of them could be a woman. I would imagine. We could see a, a woman leader of Labour or a woman leader of the Tories or a woman leader of both. And in fact, I think that would be very healthy for British politics. Okay, very good. Did you get your fragment well did you get your fragmented question answered? I, I just what I found interesting was that it was all based on the premise of that there needed to be loads of legislation. So either none or you know you can do a lot in government without actually going to parliament. And the yeah. problem you'll have is that either a minority government or a, a government with coalition will be forced to do quite a lot less. So budget, Queen's speech, two or three bills that are quite uncontentious, and then a lot of machinations with secondary legislation or behavioural insights and a lot of other stuff. Do you stuff. think that would be bad or good? I think it would be quite bad because quite you're bad. not having the proper debate at all then. And, uh, and, 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 potentially, back. and potentially a private member's bill on an EU referendum. You know, I think it would be very, even with, with a Labour minority government, I think it would be hard to stop a private member's bill on an EU referendum actually being passed by a majority in the Commons. So, so there's a real possibility. You know, we had a Conservative private member's bill that, that got 304 votes in favour and zero votes against because the Conservatives couldn't put it to Parliament. That could easily happen again, and if, they, if that gets done early on in the Parliament, we could see that pass. OK, and we're going to... I'm going to take some more questions, but before I do that, because I know some people will have to leave because I don't want you to go, but we're not going to stay here all night. But Simon did promise a vote. And I think now, before we find out from the pollsters, what I'd like you to do, and I really want you to try very, very hard with this, to set aside your personal politics. You're all capable of doing this. Set aside your personal politics. And uh, I just want you to... Vote on who you think, to put it crudely, did best tonight. Who performed best in terms of furthering their chances in the coming general, the, coming, the, general, the chances for the for their party in the general election? Now I'll go around the stage uh, from, as it were, Mr. Farage through to Mr. Miliband, and I'll just do them uh, one by one. So just put your hand up. You can vote more than once. Actually, how are we going to tell? <laughs> Simon, Simon is going to be the Electoral Reform Society. Or we'll how many people think now set aside your own views as far as you can how they get it Tony think Mr Farrar did best tonight 
hands up so you can count. That's, that's three, four, three, about three. I see about three. Four, there's another one there. Four. Very good. Four, four, okay. Uh, Miss Sturgeon. <laughs> Don't bother counting. <laughs> um, who do we come to next? Leanne. Oh, was it? No, who was, the, who was the one in the middle? Was it Leanne? Natalie Bennett. Natalie. Sorry. Natalie Bennett. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Ish, probably a bit more actually. Twelve. It's quite hard to see with the red. Thirteen. Thirteen. One more. Fourteen. 14. Um, then we come to Leanne Wood. Oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. One at the back. Thirteen. Thirteen. And then David Miliband. Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband. <laughs> You know, I've got to, I try so hard not to do this. Ed Miliband. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, nine, twelve. Anyway, it's clear that that so, uh, Nicola one, Ed two, Natalie and Leanne. I think it was hard to. That was too close yeah. to call. Third and, and Nigel last. A self-selecting audience, not a very ra- random sample <laughs> okay. of the British public. <laughs> what we'll find out now is how the we'll compare that with the doubtless less. Not yet. Not it's yet. not out yet. Jack no, is Jack. man with the with the uh, salvation survey is not yet with us. As soon as we find out, we'll call him onto the stage. Now we'll carry on with a few questions. There's a gentleman here who definitely was waiting, and then. Lady and a gentleman there who had their hands up a long time ago. I just thought it was a bit easy for the other left par- left parties to uh, make the statements on stage. Like um, Ed Miliband was the only accountable potential uh, prime minister okay, uh, candidate. Said that, so go on, tell me why yeah. I'm wrong. Um, because um, first of all, uh, SNP and um, the Welsh Party both are only accountable to um, a portion of the country. Sure. And Natalie Bennett, she's only she's aiming to the, the the radical party. She doesn't isn't planning to be a prime minister. So that she can make these uh, blank these statements uh, that err on the radical left, while Ed has to seem more responsible. I mean, do you think that there's any issue, uh, any aspect of accountability that led to Ed Miliband placing himself more towards the right because he might have to answer uh, to these qualms of worry, of responsibility? So, just to check I got that right. <laughs> is that, I mean, it's true, but it is true only Ed Miliband can win. But what, just to give, give us that last bit of the question again, just to be sure I got it. The fact that Ed is the only prime ministerial uh, candidate is that the reason why he was sort of restraining himself from making well, he more was restraining himself because he's the real chance he'll win and by implication the others can have greater free freedom because they know they won't win okay and there was two questions there together nice and efficient <coughs> well, comments if you don't want to question is it fair to the English electorate that Nicola Sturgeon is not standing for the Westminster Parliament, but she's telling us what her party will do? Is it fair that she's not standing? Is it fair to the English, English electorate? She's not standing, yeah. OK, very clear, yeah. Uh, John Strafford, can I just make a comment, uh, being part of the older generation, that I found the host screening rather sad Uh, and it's summed up by Sue Cameron by saying it's great entertainment well I don't look at these things to be entertained I look at them to be informed I look at them to have proper debate and it is scandalous that an audience with a 
pile of politicians on the, on the stage can't ask uh, questions directly to them. It is scandalous that the media has to decide beforehand five questions that they're going to put to these politicians. And the last time I uh, was at uh, Central Hall Westminster uh, was in the 64 general election when Harold Wilson on one occasion and Quinton Hogg on another occasion had an entire thousands of people in that hall uh, being heckled by the audience having questions put to them and these politicians now are travelling around the country uh, having so-called hustings at which only party members are allowed to attend no ordinary members of the public no voters are allowed to go to it uh, so this has become a charade of an election it is a disgrace and it is a disgrace as to how our politics has fallen into such a sad place none of them have got any vision they're mediocre people putting over mediocre programs and we need a politician with a vision for the future who can ride a rainbow of opportunity <laughs> As you can see, we don't constrain our audiences. And more to the point, more to the point, I think your point, the point of the Harold Wilson point and dealing with hecklers is very well made because politicians like Harold Wilson benefited from having raw audiences and being able to deal with the hecklers. And in fact, in this room, when Nicola Sturgeon came to speak, she did have a difficult question from the back, and I think she did handle that quite well. And it does show how politicians can turn a real audience to their advantage. So I think interested to see, Sue, what do you think? Well, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said, uh, and I think that in many ways the campaign uh, th there isn't proper debate about policies, partly because the policies of a lot of them are they're marginally different, but they're not hugely different at all. Um, I don't think there's much chance of going back to the time of uh, Harold Wilson. I mean, apart from <coughs> anything else, television wasn't... Uh, wasn't the, the same and, and we didn't have the internet and all the rest of it um, and I think, I think you're quite right, politics generally has become much more bloodless I think that is why so many uh, such a huge chunk of the public are so turned off by them um, and I also think that the politicians, uh, none of the party leaders and particularly the two big parties who are dying on their feet uh, I don't think that they have got the first faint, foggiest idea of what should be done to re-engage people. I think myself uh, that what we need desperately is a total realignment of, uh, of the political system of the main parties uh, so that there is a proper left-wing option, a proper right-wing option and a sort of one-party Tory, Labour, something like that. But I don't think that it is really sustainable. Uh, and in the absence of proper debate, and I do think that the public generally is not prepared to listen to too much detail on policy. I think, you know, the reason you elect the beggars is to do that for you. Uh, I do think a bit of entertainment is, um, is something that is at least a compensation, and I thought we got a lot of it tonight. Yes, yeah, so we do add the theatricality of it by doing it in here, where we can all share the fun together. Simon. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that in, in, in two senses. One... It is a bit ridiculous that they get given the questions beforehand so they can prepare their answers to the questions before they go on stage. To me, that's not politics. 
To me, that's show business. I mean, they're actors now. I mean, you know, they choose five questions beforehand, which they give to them beforehand, and they can prepare their answers. I mean, or they kind of know, or they know exactly what the topics are going to be. There's no sort of open, we know that, you know, anybody in the audience can bring up any sort of topic, and they've on their feet got to think about how they would respond to these things there and then live. I mean, so I, I, I agree with that. But part of the problem is a second issue, which is I think that who are the people going into politics these days in Britain? And it's not just in Britain, it's in a, a lot of places in the world. We now have, you know, 100 years ago, uh, Weber, the German political scientist, made a speech in Munich and he said, uh, one, democracy will lead to the professionalization of politics. We finally got there. We finally got to politicians who are professional politicians since they were teenagers. So, you know, we, people start being the politicians as teenagers, they go off to universities, places like this, and they're politically active at universities. They go and become assistants to MPs or work in think tanks. And then they stand in a seat that they're not going to get elected in, and then eventually they get into... They've not really done anything else in their, in their lives. And each of the parties are the same in that sense. They're not really recruiting people into politics later in life. And they seem to be getting younger and younger. You know, this is the first time that the Prime Minister might be actually younger than me in my life. That, that makes me... I'm, an, I'm part of the older generation now. So, so I'm on your side of the fence on this one. Which, so I think there needs to be a big question about how do we recruit people into politics from outside politics into politics. And I think we are seeing um, a political class which to most of the rest of the country looks the same. But having said that, the fragmentation of the vote and the rise of these other parties, the rise of UKIP, the rise of the Greens, the rise of the SNP implied, I think that's healthy for British democracy because they're speaking out against that establishment. They're speaking out against those mainstream and a lot of them, a lot of people have warned to Leanne Wood and warned to Natalie Bennett and warned to Nigel Farage because they don't look and feel exactly like your cookie-cutter Tory or Labour politician. And actually, just to come back to the question at the front here, it does allow them uh, greater freedom to say things, because they're not going to be in government on their own. Does it, I mean, it just gives them freedom to say things which otherwise won't be said in mainstream politics. Now, Farage quintessentially does that, Natalie Bennett does it, they wouldn't normally be compared. But is, is that... I mean, it could be seen as problematic, or it could actually just be seen, and I think in this conversation, suggests it's healthy. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I agree that it's, uh, that it's healthy. I think um, the point about uh, Nicola Sturgeon yeah, not standing good. and about uh, uh, the other freer to speak, I think she's slightly the exception to being freer to speak. She has got uh, an election where she's clearly going to win it in Scotland, but uh, she wants to do as well as she can. So she's not, she's not perhaps as free as Leanne Wood or, or Natalie Bennett or Nigel Farage to just come out with... Uh, with anything. Um, I, think, uh, I think the question of she's not standing, well, fair enough in one sense, she's not standing for a Westminster seat, but she will be very influential. Although there is an issue as to whether Alex Salmond, if he gets down here, I think there could well be a lot of needle between Sturgeon and Salmond, because who's going to, he's going to be down here when the negotiations happen, and she's going to be up there, and despite modern communications, that might give him uh, an advantage. I think the whole issue of um, the union and of uh, the SNP that nobody south of the border, the other 84% can't vote for, I think that is potentially a cause of real, real difficulty. But let's see what happens. Okay, still no news from the poll? No, right, let's take some more <laughs> questions then. Take one there and one here. 
And I did see another thing. There's a woman. Yes. Stick your hand up. Stick your hand up. Two women. Okay, we'll take four. One, two, three, four. And I promise we'll come to others. So, like Sue, I also enjoyed that. But we're an LSE audience um, full of, uh, I imagine, some other North London geeks too. Um, But um, what do we think should be the format in future? There were two people on that panel today that none of us, most of us who I imagine most people here live in London, can't vote for. The Prime Minister wasn't there. The Deputy Prime Minister wasn't there. What should be the format of engaging more people in politics rather than people running away from from debate and and, and discussing records? How the earth can we come up with a way of coming up with a format that doesn't involve it being the tawdry mess it was this time? Hi. I was wondering why the European question and a potential referendum wasn't uh, discussed into too much detail. The only one who made his point absolutely clear was Nigel Farage, and the other ones were sort of trying to get around it without making their points clear. Is it because of uh, increasing Euroscepticism in the UK and because they don't want to contradict uh, or shock British voters? Okay, and then two questions here. Hi, um, do you not find it odd that we've got a seven-way debate and a majoritarian electoral system? Seven-way debate and a majoritarian electoral system. Science question, yeah, great. Do you think the um, the decline of the major two major political parties is kind of a permanent product of great education and internet, or is it a product of the kind of radicalism from the financial crisis and the recession? Decline of the two-party system. I think it. I mean, in a sense, mm. it started before all of that. But it's a great question. Okay. Um, what should be the format in future? Simon, your turn to go first, we think. I think, it would, I think a lot of countries have a debates commission or, or, or set out in statute that delegates to a commission and then the parties and all pre-commit to say we will abide by the rules. And some norms are set down to say how this is going to work and then the commission has to think about how that should be implemented and everyone has to abide by those rules about how it's implemented. So I, I think... Um, I liked, actually, the original proposal, which was to have a sort of 7-3-2, which was to say, we recognise we're now a multi-party system, there should be a debate amongst all of you, but we also recognise that there's mainly a debate for the national parties. Those national parties you can think of as either three or four, if you think of UKIP, and then there should be a debate amongst who realistically are the prime ministerial candidates. That, to me, seemed like a sensible way forward, and I I think I really... I'm surprised that Cameron managed to to get his way out of that. I was really I thought that he was going to have to be forced to to go along with that, and and he took a political risk. And the political risk may actually I don't think it's going to backfire uh, as much as I, I thought it might backfire for him not going along with what they proposed. But I thought what they proposed seemed like a reasonable thing. And in the future, I, I would like a, um, a debates commission. Yeah, I think I agree with you that there should be a commission. I don't think that anybody should ever be made to do what the BBC or to do what the commission wants. If somebody really says, I don't want to debate with X or Y, um, I'm afraid that has to be up to them. I mean, I think otherwise you're putting the the TV before the politics. But I agree there should be a commission. And what should happen, perhaps, is what happened in America, where there was a very long gap between the first... um, 
presidential TV debate, and I think it was 16 years or something before they had another one. But now you just, I mean, America wouldn't dream of not having uh, a debate. And I think if you... Nor would France involved, or Germany or Holland or Belgium or but, anywhere but else in the democratic don't world. Want to do it, then they've got to have the right. You can't have yeah. them ordered to go and discuss. Europe, Simon, you're as Europe. Yeah, um, Why I, I, I think it's mentioned other than by Farage because the other parties all don't really want a referendum. So you know they, they're colluding to keep it off the agenda. Um, had Cameron been there tonight, I think he would have had more of a debate about the Europe question because he would have asked directly to Ed Miliband again the question he put the first time. I trust the British people to make a decision about the major constitutional question of this generation. Why don't you? And I think if Farage asks that question, it's very easy for Miliband to sort of bat it away and say, look, Farage is crazy. Um, like, it's like on immigration, like on everything else, we can just ignore him and talk about something different. But I think, so that, and the rest of them agree with Miliband that they, they shouldn't. I actually think we probably will have a referendum. And I, I think uh, Miliband should have been put much more on the spot in these debates about, about Labour's position on this. I think you have to remember that the British public, on the whole, aren't fired up by Europe. It is very low down their list of priorities. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons. One of the reasons why Ed can get away with saying, I, I don't want a referendum. But also, to be fair to him, he did say, you know, it'll be a disaster if we, uh, if we come out of Europe. But I think the big reason is that, it, unlike immigration, it doesn't really engage an awful lot of people. Seventh most important issue in the latest YouGov poll uh, on their weekly uh, tracker of issue importance, it's seventh. It's fourth for UKIP voters. Seven parties. I mean, trying to run, are we now trying to run a classic majoritarian seven, uh, system, government with a seven-party system? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, 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 we have, uh, I like to say, we have an electoral system that was, that's fit for a com- country that no longer exists. I mean, it's fit for a country that, you know, when 95% of the seats in the country in the 1950s were Labour versus Conservative in every constituency. So the outcome in most constituencies in the country was the outcome in the country as a whole. And you've got a swing from one party to the next. You've got a decisive election outcome. You've got a clear electoral majority that translated into a clear parliamentary majority. When that happens in a majoritarian electoral system, that means the majoritarian system works really well. If it doesn't produce a majority, it doesn't do anything else. It doesn't give us any choice inside our constituencies between... For most people in the country, there's no electoral choice. Most constituencies in the country are safe seats, and our votes are irrelevant. Only a small proportion of the electors in the country are actually influencing this election outcome. The main reason why I'm in favour of PR, and not the sort of PR that some of these parties are in favour, but why I'm in favour of PR is to give everybody in the country a real choice in elections to feel that their votes actually count and they actually can have an influence on elections outcomes and actually choose not just between parties, but choose within parties between different politicians. So we can bring into politics people from outside politics and and parties on, uh, politicians on ballots can say, vote for me because I'm not an established politician. I'm running against the leadership of my party, but I want to stand as a candidate for this particular party. That's the kind of electoral system that I want. And On the long-term decline of the two-party system, and we heard about Harold Wilson earlier on, I think I'm right in saying that when Anthony Eden won his uh, election in the in the mid-1950s, 1955, 
he got, or the Conservative and Labour vote was over 95. I think it was 90, 97. Yeah, 97%. 96. So it's yeah. been declining on more or less continuously since then, hasn't it? And particularly since the 70s, early 70s. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's, yes, it has been declining, uh, and it's now sort of suddenly come up against almost a brick wall, I think. I reckon that whatever the outcome of this election, we are going to have to see major changes in the way we do things. I think first past the post has got to go. I've always been in favour of first past the post myself but I don't think it's sustainable. It would be possible, I mean the polls are going up and down, for UKIP to get uh, a bigger share of the vote than the Lib Dems and UKIP gets three seats and the Lib Dems get uh, 30. And the SNP get get 4% of the national vote and 50 seats. And they're going to get 50 seats, yes absolutely or or certainly 45. and I just do not think it's sustainable, and I don't think that people will um, put up with it. I think that's going to have to change. I think that uh, also the, uh, the, the, the parties are going to have to change. I mean, one of the things, I haven't done enough work on this, but, you know, there's been a real shortage of people, even for the main parties, good candidates, actually coming forward to be prospective parli- parliamentary candidates. I think both Labour and the Tories have been really pushed to find people. People once, you know, you'd have had hundreds of people applying for safe seats. Now there's sort of half a dozen, or there's, there's a, a dozen and ten of them are no good. Um, and I mean, they're complete sort of non-starters. So I do think that the whole system is going to have to uh, change quite um, dramatically. And I think that the parties have somehow got to um, readjust. I I think one of the difficulties is that in the past you've been able to vote tactically, but um, now who are the bad guys? I mean, we may all have our parties that we don't like, but in 1997, for instance, everybody pretty much was sick of the Tories, even the Tories were sick of the Tories, so you could vote tactically to get rid of them. But if you don't want UKIP, or you don't want the Tories, or you don't want Miliband, how do you vote in your constituency? You just have no real say to get the kind of government that you want. It's all far too tortuous. So I think, again, there has to be some sort of new system some sort of PR system. Okay, now we're going to take no more questions because we have our cephalogical expert, Jack, Jack now, who has finally got the result from the survey, or whoever it is, survey, and is now going to talk to us about it with some uh, audiovisual help, I think. Can I have the way so we can see? Yeah, there Well, the audience here, I think, 
Nicholas Sturgeon won easily, followed by... Okay, so we've got one and two, right? Well done, audience. Come on. <laughs> you didn't do so well on Mr Farage. I think Rishi was right. Not perhaps the most representative audience in the world here tonight. And then these two are actually doing slightly better in the audience here. Yes. So, so remarkably, the results that Salvation get from a demographically representative sample are not the same as an LSE. <laughs> <laughs> what a show. Anyhow, so that's the main result. But let me just say a couple of things about... These kinds of polls and the effect of the debates more generally on polling, right? So there are some caveats to this. The first thing is that we had some missing leaders this evening, as everyone's noticed. And hopefully, yes, so here was a tweet the Economist said. The most searched Google question today during the debate was where is David Cameron? So maybe even that some people don't even understand why he's not there. It's just the people who follow these conversations understand why it's not there. But for the most, most of the population, that's not necessarily the case. The second one, my favourite, is what Nick Clegg was doing in the scene. <laughs> so hopefully... He was in the pub! <laughs> that's right! So he said this during the debate. Right? He'd said a tweet earlier on saying, very disappointed I'm not there, had asked to be there, or something to that effect, and then sent a, a tweet of him uh, having a pump. So anyway, the point is that this matters, right? So when you're asked who do you think won the debate, and you get these kind of results, there are two people missing again. And we don't know what those results could have been. But not only do we not know what those results would have been, because they're not there, we also don't really know where these should be. Right? So in terms of like, really understanding what this kind of polling tells us, I don't want to have to wait for ages and then tell you to ignore me, but you should ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> then one more thing. We're going to be asking, or you're going to hear a lot of questions about what does this debate mean for the election more broadly. <coughs> Someone already on the BBC would have asked this question. Will Miliband or Sturgeon or Farage benefit from a balance, right? And the difficulty is, is that it's very hard to measure whether there is going to be a balance in the polls thanks to the debate, right? So it's really unlikely that changes in vote share due to the debate, directly due to people watching the debate and changing their mind, will be detected in the polls over the next few days. So I'm just going to quickly walk through one thing, and this I should acknowledge Chris Hammerty, he's at the University of East Anglia, who made a similar point last week after the previous debate. So this is the UK's voting population, right? About 30 million people. It's all right, I'm nearly done. About 30 million people. How many of these people would have watched the debate? Well, let's guess, right? So roughly four and a half million. That's probably quite a, a big estimate, I'd say. That's about halfway in between the previous debates. Of those people who watched, how many were undecided? Well, in the last debate, it was about 8%. Right? So you see how we went from this enormous, enormous square to this tiny little corner. Right? Now let's be generous to unbelievers. Let's think every band on the pop. So let's say of those undecided voters, 60% went to Miller. That's that much. Right? So we've gone from 30 million voting population to about 216,000 people deciding to vote for Miller. Now, in order to be able to detect that type of swing, in a poll, you need a poll with a sample size of about 200,000 people. Anyone know what the average is? thousand. So it may well be that you can detect a difference in national level vote intention after the next 
path. But only if you have a sample size of 200,000. So if you are a journalist here and you are about to run that kind of sample, yeah. <laughs> except I'm about what? to do the except. Like more than wise, these people. <laughs> so the point is, is that don't write. If you're a journalist, and you don't write headlines like this because they're really annoying. And if you're if you're not a journalist and you read these kind of things, please ignore these kind of headlines because they're really annoying. They're completely meaningless. But as Simon says, there is a however. Okay. So I'm going to show you one more plot, and it's quite techy, uh, but it gives an intuition of why, of course, the debates might. <coughs> So here's the plot. Right. Cartoon. And for those of you who can't read it, one of the characters is saying, a random number generator just produced a new batch of numbers. And then the other person goes, great, let's use them to build narratives. Right. This is the kind of thing that winds statisticians up a lot. But I think it actually tells the story of why these kind of polls matter and why the debates matter. Because people who influence opinion, so media pundits, TV people, journalists, even those weird folk who come to watch a debate in an august education and such, uh, stick around for an hour afterwards and then for another ten minutes and listen to someone talk about polling. They're going to use these things to build narratives. And they're going to tell stories about how Miliband is improving, or how the campaign has changed since yesterday. And that's really why the polls matter if they matter at all. Uh, so with that, I'm going to leave it and just leave that on the screen. And please go to this website. Thank you. It's been a long night. Uh, it's now, some of you will, be, will have been here nearly three hours. So I'd just like to thank all of you for coming, because not as long as election night will be. We will do this again, sadly, well, there may be another general election soon, in which case you'll be back sooner for this kind of event, and you think, thank you very much and good night.